two major parties pretty much have their minds made up for their nominees. And boy, America is not pleased. Quinn Hillier is talking about independent candidacies on this crummy little podcast. Over the last week and a half or so, you've been hearing a lot about potential third party or independent runs for president. And actually, you've been hearing it since it became clear Donald Trump would be the Republican nominee. But in the past week and a half or so, Bill Kristol and others have stressed that 2016 in particular is a lot of room for participants beyond the traditional two major party candidates. Quinn Hillier has been one of the main voices of Never Trump Republicans for several months and a prolific writer and conservative activist for longer than that. Uh, he's a contributing editor of National Review and a senior editor from the American Spectator, so he has some credibility here. Quinn, thanks for coming back to this crummy little podcast. Glad to be on with you, Jim. You know, the, we were just saying that the news broke a few hours ago that David French, the last name that Crystal's been dropping, is is not running for president. Um, and and French himself wasn't a, a what you would call an ideal candidate. He's a he's a columnist and a writer, a very brilliant guy, but maybe not the person who's in the sweet spot of a presidential candidacy. Is there still space and is there still time for a candidacy to develop to give people another option beyond Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? There is absolutely space and there are absolutely the resources. The question is whether there is time still. Um, the time is running very short. The original sort of semi-drop-dead target date for a third major candidate, uh, one coming from the principal right, was June 1st. And obviously it is now June 6th. Uh, that didn't mean that it was an absolute drop-dead date, but that was a target date after which it becomes uh, much more difficult. People do not realize just how close, on just how many occasions, uh, the never-Trump groups have gotten to getting a candidate to sign on the dotted line and announce. Obviously, David French was the last one, and he is not as well-known as the others. Uh, we came extraordinarily close to one other who would have commanded immediate respect and would have immediately been seen as viable. We came uh, reasonably close to one, two, three, four others in addition to that. So, uh, you know, this thing is very real. The resources behind it are very real. The organization behind it is very real. Uh, there are people with decades of political experience, winning political experience, that are working to develop such a third candidate. And the only problem is getting one to be willing to turn his or her life around in a very short period of time. Because, again, most people spend months, if not years, planning to run for president, and we've been asking people to make a decision and to, to, to completely upend their lives in you know, the space of about three weeks. Now, you mentioned that there is space, and we know from looking at polls that there are large chunks of Americans who say that they would consider third-party candidates or independent candidates. But what I struggle with, and I think a lot of folks struggle with when they look at that battlefield, Conventional wisdom is well. Wait a second. If if you have a third party coming from the right or a third or an independent candidate coming from the right, they split votes with with Trump from the Republican pool, and then some of these states that are that are borderline or, or swing states, they go to to Hillary Clinton who you know, chugs along with her forty three percent or whatever she gets. But well, my usual, that does my usual rule of thumb is that 
if it's conventional wisdom, then two out of three times it is wrong. <laughs> That's the, usually a good rule. Yeah, the conventional wisdom would apply in, a, in an ordinary year. This is not an ordinary year. You have two candidates who are uh, at, at have record levels combined, record levels of unpopularity. You have uh, you do have one of those two candidates uh, in uh, Donald Trump who makes up for part, but nowhere near all of that unpopularity by having popular by having attractiveness to certain seg- sectors of the populace that tend to vote. Democrat, uh, mainly you know working class whites. So, right there, with tremendous unpopularity, with fifty fifty five percent of the public saying they are open to a third party or or to an, a strong independent bid, and with uh, with Trump being able to grab some from sort of I guess you'd call it the center, although it's not really ideological. And with the libertarians running their strongest ticket ever and running not right but left, what that creates is the potential for the ordinary red-blue electoral map to get scrambled as never before. It's not red-blue, it's purple, it's magenta, it's, it's all sorts of shades in between and it can break any of about 100 different ways. Uh, because here's how it works. If the libertarians who have some sort of conservative tendencies and some sort of culturally liberal tendencies, including very much against the military, very much pro-marijuana, very much anti-establishment, if they succeed in, in doing what they've already started doing, which is attracting more from the Bernie Sanders millennial left than they are from the right, then that takes away a big chunk of votes that most Democrats then Donald Trump, from call it the center, takes away those working class whites that the Democrats usually get. Suddenly, Hillary's or whoever the Democrat is, their base level vote goes down from 45 percent, below which ordinarily no Democrat will ever go, down to say 33, 34, 35 percent. But Trump doesn't get them all. Because if he pulls from one group, he loses even more from another. There are at least 20, probably 25 million Americans who vote in almost every presidential election, who vote Republican in almost every presidential election, who will literally never, ever, ever vote for Donald Trump. That's where the opportunity is for an independent candidate. And, and, and if you've been able to follow all this, what you have is 10% from the libertarians, Hillary down to 33 or 34, Trump getting his 33 or 34, and the, uh, the unnamed conservative getting 25%. All of a sudden, Nobody gets an electoral college majority in the electoral house. That is how a third or an independent candidate wins. Can you follow all that? I mean, I know you can, but I hope I haven't made it too confusing for listeners. <laughs> uh, no, that's that. That makes sense to me. So that's uh, that's interesting. Now, so that's that shows kind of the stri- the strategy of it. You mentioned that that June first was kind of a logistical soft drop dead date. 
if you can have a soft drop dead date. But as we get to the points where ballot access is going to become an issue, can that third party or the conservative independent group get on the ballot in enough states to make a difference where they would throw it into a an electoral college chaos and, and throw it into the House of Representatives? Well, that's why we were sort of aiming at June 1st. Uh, the analysis was that if a strong candidate was ready to go uh, in the first week of June, that uh, that it would be fairly easy to get on the ballot in 39 states. And it would be more difficult but reasonably achievable to do it in five or six others. And then of the other five, either you might not want to contest them at all because you wouldn't have any chance of winning, or you might still be able to run a write-in campaign like uh, Lisa Murkowski did in Alaska to get a Senate from Alaska, or you could win a court fight, which is actually very, very doable in some cases in some states, win a court fight to reopen uh, ballot access. So you're looking at somewhere between 39 or best-case scenario, all 50 states, although probably somewhere between 39 and about 46 or 47 states where you, where your candidate is actually running a competitive race, at least in terms of being able to get on the state ballot. Now, if you're on the state ballot in 47 states, that's pretty much a national campaign. You have to have at least some critical mass because if you go into it with uh, – and I think I saw a – a good analysis of it saying, well, if you're on the ballot in, in these 27 states, you can win enough electoral votes to, to throw the whole thing into chaos. You know, But it's a tough thing for a voter, I would think, in Ohio to go and pull a lever for somebody who may not be everywhere. You know, If you, if you do the math and, and someone's peak, if they win every state they're in the ballot on is, say, 240 electoral votes – you know, maybe it's tough for you to pull the ballot for that one because so many things have to happen. There's like a whole Rube Goldberg device behind the, the lever of the ballot that has to go into motion for that person to become president. Well, that that's why it's important that we get on as many state ballots as we can. And that's why, you know, your example, 27 states, somebody might think, okay, well, they're not serious. But if somebody making such a late start is able to get on, say, 43 state ballots, then the voter will say, well, you know, this is more or less a national campaign, and it's pretty impressive that they did it when they started so late. So nobody knows what the exact number of states is for critical psychological mass among the electorates. But obviously, you know, the higher you get, say 35, 37, 39, the higher you get, the more uh, of a realistic campaign that looks to every American voter. And that is important. Uh, let me say this. Everybody says, well, third parties never work. And then they point to the most prominent recent third party and they say, look, Ross Perot got only 19% of the vote in 1992. Here's what they miss. Ross Perot proves my point, not theirs. Ross Perot did not even start uh, opening a phone bank for a draft movement until March 12th of 1992. In June, just three months later, he led the polls, 39, to Bush's 31, to Clinton's 25. If 
he had not pulled a crazy uncle routine, he might have stayed at the top of the polls. Instead, he started babbling about some conspiracy theory that the Bush administration sent the CIA to disrupt his daughter's wedding. Then he dropped out of the race for three months before re-entering about October 1st. So if a candidate, uh, an independent candidate, can get to the top of the polls and then drop out of the race and start sounding like a lunatic, get back in with only a month left and still get 19% of the vote, how well do you think he could have done if he had stayed sane and if he had stayed in the race? A solid third candidate gets at least 26 27%, just based on the Perot experience. And remember, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump today combined, their combined unpopularity far exceeds what the elder Bush and Bill Clinton had when Ross Perot was challenging them in 1992. I'll stop the bus right now. People forget how how unpopular the choices were that led to Perot entering that race, too. Well, yeah, but, I mean, yeah, but the point is that even they were nowhere near as unpopular as Hillary and Donald Trump are now. You know, you've obviously studied this a lot. If someone comes up and, and decides today, you know, on June 6th as we're recording this, you know what, David French is out, but I'm going to be the guy who, who does it. How much is it going to cost to get this level of ballot access, this level of, of ramp up in such a short time? Ballot access, about $15 million. Uh, my understanding is that as of three weeks ago or so, uh, the available money pledged to such an effort. Now, this was when we were talking much bigger names. The available money uh, to back such an effort was at about $25 million, meaning $15 million for ballot access and $10 million to get an organization up and, uh, up and running and especially to get a fundraising apparatus up and running. So there was definitely money to do it if if – if you've got $10 million to start an organization and start fundraising, that's a pretty good start. Uh, and that's how much they had, the $10 million over the $15 million that it would have cost to get on all the ballots. That's impressive that it's it's as well-funded as it, as it has been, especially because there's not a personality at the middle. Usually when you have great fundraising, <laughs> you usually have someone at the middle who's either a great personality or, or is hitting on a – philosophical touchstone that is you know making people open their wallet yeah that, and, and, and in look, and of what i've got to say is that was 25 million not in hand but pledged but pledged from people who tend to actually put their money where their mouth is so it was fairly reliable 25 million that would have been for a you know candidate like a senator ben sass who everybody was talking about three weeks ago uh, whether all that $25 million would have been available for a you know, relative unknown like David French is not clear, but if not $25 million, maybe 19 or $20 million. Either way, uh, there's some, the point is there's some serious, serious people who, have, who always abide by their pledges who have pledged money toward this effort. Do you feel some of the reluctance to, to jump into the race – for some of the people who would have been in the position to be a candidate, do you think there's some fear over reprisal, uh, either from 
party leaders, Republican Party leaders, or from maybe even rank-and-file Republican voters to a, to a lesser extent? That might be the case for you know some of the people that we've talked to is worrying about their own political career. Uh, I for others like I think like Ben Sass and I think like several others whose names have been thrown out, Tom Coburn, General James Mattis. I don't think they're they're so focused on their their precious political career as much as they're just focused on logistics, family health, that sort of thing. Let me let me make up an example that's sort of a composite, okay? You are considering running for president all of a sudden, and you have a uh, brother who has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder from serving in the war, and who is therefore very, very sensitive uh, to criticism, to scrutiny, et cetera. And you've seen what how vicious Donald Trump can be, attacking the looks of an opponent's wife, suggesting that the same opponent's father had something to do with JFK's assassination, uh, belittling the disability of a hardworking journalist, uh, you know, all of these examples. And you're ready to go, the rest of your family is ready to go, but you look at your brother and you think Donald Trump could just viciously go after your brother and and set your brother off. Well, you can't run. You cannot morally make the make the uh, make the effort even though you might like to and everything else might be in place. Again, that's not I, I just made that up off the top of my head, but that's sort of a composite of what we've heard from some some of the really good, thoughtful, serious candidates uh, is that, you know, you have health problems, you have family problems, or not problems, but but things that, that, that in a campaign could be blown out of proportion and be made into problems. You have logistical problems. If you're in South Dakota and you've got small children and you – uh, have a system where you fly home every weekend from Washington, that's one thing. But if you have to disrupt that system because you're now not able to fly, you have a regular fly home every weekend, but instead are, are all over the country and 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 you have, say, the, the child has uh, uh, diabetes, juvenile diabetes or something, you don't you just can't do it. You can't put your family at risk. That's that is a very human thing that that all these cynical pundits just don't get. And it's really frustrating to see how nasty some pundits are about a legitimate effort to try to provide a good alternative to to bad options. You know, worth mentioning as you bring up those those family options the year before a presidential election, we have a host of those stories being told if you're paying attention, you know, where people are ramping up and ramping up and ramping up a presidential exploratory committee or a presidential campaign pre-primary and they get right to the point where they want to pull the trigger and they say no. And it's, and I've, I've worked with a lot of colleagues, a lot of friends who have 
who have been ready to go on this campaign or that campaign, and then the weekend before they're supposed to have a launch event, they get a call that says, no, we're, not, we're just not going to do it. The family wasn't into it or or whatever for a whole host of reasons. Now, if this happens in April of 2015, you don't pay any attention to it because no one's paying attention to the race yet. And this, you know, this just happens to be happening at a at a period where, like you said, it's 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 getting late, so the the effort is is very. Um, I should I, I it's obviously always public, but there's a lot of spotlight on the effort. There's a lot of attention paid to the effort. Uh, but this is not unusual for people to right. to dance with that possibility and then say, eh, no, it's just not for me. It's not. It's really not unusual. It happens, you know, half a dozen times. You make a great point, Jim. Look, you've got people that spend nine months planning, and then and you know trying to figure out ways to ameliorate whatever the situation is that might make it tough for them to run. And they spend nine months, and then at the last minute they say, "No, I can't." So imagine if instead of nine months to plan, you have three weeks to decide whether to get in and whether to upend your life. Imagine how hard that is. It is not easy to run for president of the United States. Anybody that is thoughtful and that considers it in such a short time period uh, should be thanked. Final question for you, Quinn. If you're a a gambling man, are you uh, looking at it? Do you think we're actually going to see someone step forward and take up this independent mantle from the right? If you had asked me this three weeks ago, I would have said about a 50 to 55% chance that somebody would enter. Now I think it's down to about 10 to 15%. Uh, so no, the odds are against it, but 10 to 15 is not negligible. 10 to 1 shots do uh, come in at times. So, you know, I'm not completely hopeless, but it's getting tough. It really is. Well, Quinn, thank you for shedding light on that. That's Quinn Hillier, activist and, and columnist, a contributing editor of National Review, a senior editor for the American Spectator, and one of the folks who's been a key voice for Never Trump Republicans uh, for the last several months. Quinn, thanks very much for coming back to this crummy little podcast. Thank you for having me, Jim. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this crummy little podcast. If you want to hear more, check out www.crummylittlepodcast.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks again.